Well, if you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open with me to Genesis chapter 41. We'll continue to work through the book of Genesis on our Sunday evenings, coming now to chapter 41. And uh, it's a lengthy chapter, but we're going to read the whole thing together. And so we begin in verse 1 and uh, work through to the end of the passage. So Genesis 41, beginning to read now together at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed the second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. And we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. Then the famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. 
Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it that food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephenath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And they gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. A son of the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Our Father, as we come now to your word, we do ask that you would still our hearts, still them from all the distractions of life and of this world. Open our ears, O Lord, to receive your word this evening. Teach us from it. And by your Holy Spirit, take these great truths, apply them unto our lives, shape us by your word, help us to live in obedience to it. And Father, even through this word, would you stir up in our hearts a greater love for you, and for your ways and for all you have done. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a Puritan minister in England back in the 1600s named John Flavel. And he has this famous quote where he says, God's providence 
is like reading Hebrew. It can only be understood when we read it backwards. It can only be understood when we read it backwards. Now, we know God's providence is really his sovereignty in action. Providence is how God rules and governs all of his creation. And we see God's providence on every single page of the Bible, not just in the Joseph story. And if you've ever studied a wee bit of Hebrew, and well done if you have, uh, you soon discover it's an awkward sort of a thing to try and learn. Uh, so they made us do this at college. We've been doing it for two years, and we're really none the wiser. Uh, it's a totally different alphabet to English. You have to learn these shapes and squiggles more than anything. And when you finally get your head around the alphabet, you start putting these letters together, you're going to make a word, and then they throw another curveball at you. You have to read it back to front. And the Hebrew works the opposite way from English. Instead of reading from left to right, you read from right to left on the page. And the front of the book is really the back of the book, so you have to start at the back and work your way to the front. And really, that's the only way Hebrew can be read. If you try to read Hebrew like English, you'll not make any sense of it. And even if you read it the proper way, you'll still not make sense of it. But that's how it must be read. It can only be understood when we read it backwards. And it's the same with God's providence. That when we're in the middle of the situation, whatever that might be, we don't understand everything that's happening around us. It's only after the fact, we would say maybe with the benefit of hindsight, that we look back and we can see how God is at work. Maybe you apply for a job. You don't get the job. It was your dream job. You're devastated. But six months later or a year later, with the benefit of hindsight, you can look back and you can see maybe it's a good thing I didn't get that job because actually a better job came up or I was able to have opportunities to go and travel or do something else, whatever it might be. It's the benefit of hindsight. But if we want to understand God's providence, then we need to learn to read it backwards. We need to learn to read it like Hebrew. And so for Joseph, you can imagine, here he is. He's been betrayed by his brother, sold into Egypt, slandered by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison once more. He has this sort of glimmer of hope as that cupbearer is set free and promises he's going to tell Pharaoh about him. And then he's forgotten about. And he's just left there in the pit. And he could quite rightly wonder, why is all of this happening to me? What is going on? But Genesis 41 is really the turning point in the life of Joseph. This is when events are going to change. And when Joseph, many years later, he would look back, he would read God's providence backwards, and he would see this as the turning point in his life. And so as we work through it together, there's a number of sort of signposts that will maybe help us. First, we want to think about the power of Pharaoh and the providence of God. Who really is the sovereign in Egypt? Next, we're going to think a wee bit about Joseph's journey. Joseph goes on a journey here from the pit to the palace. And yet it is when Joseph is in the palace that he's going to be exposed to all the pressures and persuasions of the land of Egypt. And then finally, we want to think about God's purpose in all of this. What is the plan behind God's providence? So we jump in here and think about the power of Pharaoh and the providence of God. And as we saw there at the end of chapter 40 last week, Joseph is left in prison and the chief cupbearer forgot about him. We begin then chapter 41. Two years have passed and Joseph is still there. And after two years, Pharaoh has now dreamed this dream, or really two dreams. And that's significant to us because throughout the Joseph story, dreams come in pairs. We think about the two dreams Joseph had about his brothers bowing down to him. There was the baker and the cupbearer. They each only had one dream, but they sort of come as a pair. And now Pharaoh has these two dreams. And they're dreams he doesn't understand, but they greatly unsettle him. 
And perhaps the most unsettling aspect of it is something that would really unsettle us all. There's an element of cannibalism to these dreams, and that's really not a nice thing for us to think about. But we see it here that these cows come out of the Nile and devour these other cows. And cows don't eat cows. You should know that if you spent time on a farm. Uh, so something very strange is happening here. And it is probably to signify the famine that is to come because really in times of extreme famine, when the shortage of food was so severe that people in utter depravity and desperation have turned to the extremes of cannibalism. And we even find records of that in the Bible, that even in the last days of Jerusalem, when the city was besieged by the armies of Babylon, that that is where the people turn to in their desperation. So it maybe signifies the famine that is to come, but for Pharaoh, he doesn't know famine's coming, but it's certainly unsettling. It's a very unpleasant picture. So he awakes during the night, and in the morning his spirit is troubled. He calls all the wise men of Egypt to come, all of these magicians, those who were the experts in dream interpretation, who had made big business in this, and yet they prove absolutely useless. There's nothing they can do to help Pharaoh. Maybe they were just a bunch of yes men who had always told Pharaoh what he wanted to hear, and on this occasion they really didn't know what to say. Or maybe they really did have some sort of power that to them they probably would have called magic, but to us we know would be a dark spiritual power. But on this occasion it had failed them. I think we find examples of both in the Bible, but whatever the case may be, it's of no use to them. Now I'm not really one who would remember my dreams. I know I had a dream, but I couldn't tell you what it was. I have a friend who always, he has a wee dream diary. If he has a dream, he'll always try and write it down, try and process it the next day. And not that he thinks God is talking to him, but he always thinks maybe his mind is telling him something uh, that's worth trying to work out. Uh, but I don't think he ever gets too far with it. He's no better off than these magicians were. And really, these magicians might represent to us the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the world that seems so appealing, seems so insightful, so attractive to us, that is, until we're hit with something that really troubles us. Calamity strikes. The future is oh so very uncertain. And then we realize that the wisdom of this world is actually foolishness. It's no wisdom at all. It is then why we have to turn to the Lord there, and there alone is true wisdom to be found. That's something Pharaoh is going to have to learn. And then all of a sudden, this cupbearer, suddenly he comes onto the scene, and he remembers this young Hebrew man who he had met in prison some two years ago. And we might say, well, that's very convenient timing. Isn't that a bit of a coincidence? Well, of course not. It is the providence of God at work that the cupbearer has remembered Joseph exactly when God intended him to. And so Pharaoh, well, he's willing to try anything. He sends for Joseph to be brought out of prison. You see it there in, in verse 14. There's an urgency to it. Joseph has to be brought quickly to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is absolutely desperate to try anything to understand these dreams. So he has a quick shave, a quick change of clothes. He's brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh, probably the most powerful man in all the world. He could order Joseph there and then, tell me what these dreams mean. But if you look at verse 15, it almost sounds as if Pharaoh is trying to flatter Joseph a wee bit, trying to flatter him. He doesn't order him for an interpretation. And maybe there was a time when Joseph would have quite liked a bit of flattery. Uh, we remember how he used to sort of boast before his brothers. And I think his experiences in Egypt have maybe humbled him. And he realizes, as he says in verse 16, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And that's something worthwhile for us all to remember that whatever gifts or graces we may have in this life, they are just that, they are gifts. 
They are given us from God because apart from God, we can do nothing. And the moment we forget that, the moment we begin to boast of our own gifts, we might very shortly find we no longer have those gifts that they are withdrawn from us. But Joseph knows it is not in him. It is God who will give a favorable answer. So what's going on? Well, the two dreams are really one. There are seven years of plenty are to come and they will be followed by seven years of severe famine. And the doubling of this dream means the thing is set by God and it will shortly come to pass. So there we go. Pharaoh has his favorable answer. How favorable does that really sound? So in these verses, God's sovereignty is displayed. We see how God holds the future. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And Pharaoh, there's really nothing he can do about that. The Pharaohs were considered almost as gods in Egypt. And yet here, the power of Pharaoh compared to the power of God, it is really nothing. And that might be said for all the great rulers of history, all the kings and queens and emperors and presidents and all of them, good or bad, whatever power they had in their own lands and nations, it passes from them as they pass from this life. All their efforts and ambitions, great and terrible, they come ultimately to nothing. We remember the words of Psalm 2, that the nations rage, the people's plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. That all the kings of the world take counsel against God, and yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. That this really comes to nothing in the face of God. And yet there are many such pharaohs today, many wee pharaohs, those who would want to be the gods of their own little kingdoms. We like to think we're maybe the sovereigns of our own lives, that we would shape the world around us as we want it to look, that we would like to create and to do so in our own image. And yet we can only be the kings and queens of our own lives for a short time until we are confronted with the living God. And in the face of true sovereignty, we realize that our pretend sovereignty really is just folly. It comes to nothing. And all that we can do then is to fall on our knees before he who sits in the heavens. Pharaoh was ruler in Egypt, and yet all his power and prosperity is dependent upon one thing really, and that is the river Nile. It was the Nile, that great river that brought life to the land. And whereas Pharaoh standing in his first dream, he is by the Nile. And yet for all his power, he cannot make the water rise. He cannot cause the banks to swell. There's nothing he can do there. And if the Nile fails, it's disaster in Egypt. Then there's this scorching eastern desert wind that blows in. And again, there's nothing Pharaoh can do about that either. That for all his power and all his authority, he cannot make the rain fall. He can't make the river flow. He cannot make the wind blow. Only God to know that there is not a single drop of rain that falls from the sky outside of God's control, that the wind does not blow either a gentle breeze or a hurricane without God making it come to pass. In fact, this passage is full of God has and God will. It is really God is the one who acts all throughout this passage. God acts. We see how he rules and governs his creation. Back in the days of the European Enlightenment, there was really an idea that came to the fore called deism. And that's, uh, well, the deist was somebody who believed that there is a God who created the world, but he's really very disinterested in the day-to-day -day events of this world. They sort of created the world and wound it up like a clock, and then he sits it on the shelf and just lets it tick away as he's busy doing something else. And from time to time, he might check in on it, but he really doesn't mind too much what's going on. And really, that was just an excuse for people to live how they wanted, 
thinking God's uninterested in them, but they still needed some way to explain how the world came to be. And you probably won't meet too many people today who will call themselves deists, but there are many functional deists in the world. Those who believe maybe there's a God, some higher power, some creator beyond myself. But does he really have an interest in me? Does he really care about what I get up to in my spare time? Does he really care how I live my life? Does God really care about the events of this world? And many people go through life with such an attitude, but the Bible will not allow us to hold that attitude. It's absolutely incompatible with the word of God. You know, there's times when we maybe feel very small and insignificant in life. And perhaps like Joseph, we feel ourselves to have been left, abandoned, forgotten in the pit. And we wonder, where is God in that? Where is God in that? Well, we have a sovereign God. And yet we don't just consider him as sovereign alone. And when we think about God, it is most helpful for us to think about all that we know of God. Don't just think of him as sovereign, but remember also that God is good and that God is loving. And that means his sovereignty is good sovereignty. His love is a sovereign love. You think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, that all things work together for good for those who love God. Now, how is it that all things can possibly work together for good if God does not sovereignly control and work all things? He must do. And that means even when we find ourselves in the pit, that God is in some way working this for our good. Maybe we can't see it at the time. And yet, whenever we learn to read God's providence backwards, when we learn to read some Hebrew, we'll be able to look back and to see how God was working that for the good of those who love him. What we see is that God's sovereignty really demands a response. Sovereignty demands a response. Too many people use it really as an excuse for laziness. If God is sovereign, then let God get on with it. What do I really need to do? What's the point in praying? What's the point in sharing the gospel if God is really sovereign? There's an idea called Stoicism, or the Stoics, this Roman philosophy that really all of life is just governed by destiny and the fates. There's no point really getting upset about the future because what's going to happen is going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. And some people would confuse that with the sovereignty of God, but they're not compatible. They're two totally different ideas. Why? Because sovereignty comes with emotion. Because we know God is good, we know God is love, and we know his sovereignty should prompt a response in us. If you look at verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So as Pharaoh just resigned to defeat here, there's nothing he can do about this famine. Should you just sit back, give up, and let it happen? We'll look on then to verses 32 and 33. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So what should Pharaoh do? Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over all the land of Egypt. See here, Pharaoh was given an opportunity to respond, to make a response to the sovereignty of God. We see this maybe well played out for us in the story of the prophet Jonah when he goes to Nineveh. And he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Here's God is telling the people of Nineveh what he's going to do. And so what should the people of Nineveh do? Just accept it, just sit back, say, we've got 40 days, let's enjoy it while it lasts. No, the purpose of that is that the people of Nineveh would repent of their sin and wickedness and turn to the Lord to find grace and forgiveness in him. It's a sovereign declaration of what God is going to do. And yet there we find an opportunity to respond, to make a response to that. It's like when Jesus says, 
I will build my kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, Jesus is going to build his kingdom. No obstacle can stop that. He'll do that sovereignly. So we can just sit back and let him get on with it, surely. Well, no, we also have this great commission from Jesus to go and to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And what does that mean? It means we're to make a response. It's that we're to go as Jesus has commanded us, that we are to go and to be his witnesses, to be his instruments in the building and advance of his kingdom. And so here Pharaoh was given an opportunity to prepare for the famine. And Joseph tells him how, appoint this discerning and wise man over the land, somebody who'll keep back a fifth of all the produce from the plenty of years, and that will equip them then, all stored up for the years of famine to strike. And Pharaoh says then, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, four times back in chapter 39, we read that God was with Joseph. Four times we read that. You'll not read those words in chapter 41. We, don't, we aren't told that here, but we are shown it. We are shown that God is with Joseph. Now, Pharaoh would not have understood the Spirit of God the same way we do. He didn't have a Bible like us. But even a broken clock is right twice a day, that the Spirit of God is in Joseph. And so Joseph gets the job. He's about to go from the pit to the palace, from being a prisoner to prime minister almost. And it's sort of like a, a King Charles Rishi Sunak thing here, or whoever the sort of is in the revolving door of number 10 at the moment. Uh, it's a prime minister and a king, essentially. So this is the new role for Joseph. And we can notice with Joseph, anytime something's really gone wrong for him, he gets stripped of his clothing. Think of how his brothers took that colorful coat off him and threw him into the pit, sold him off to Egypt. As he fled from Potiphar's wife, she grabbed hold of his coat and, and kept a hold of that. And yet here, as Joseph gets this great promotion, what happens? Pharaoh puts a ring on his finger, a gold chain around his neck, gives him the finest of Egyptian clothes to wear. And it really represents the ultimate change in status. We'll maybe see an example of this in Mark 5. There is the famous story where Jesus meets this demon-possessed man, this man possessed by the legion of unclean spirits. And the Bible tells us that he was, uh, he was naked and crying out and cutting himself with stones. He's a savage sort of a man. And we know how the story goes. Jesus cast the unclean spirits out of the man into these pigs. They run down at the hill and drown in the sea. And the people of the town come to see what all the commotion is about. And there they find this demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. It's a total change in status. It's a total transformation in this man's life that has ultimately only come by the grace of God. And that's what we see in Joseph. Pharaoh has appointed him to be the prime minister, essentially. But it's by the grace of God. It is God sovereignly working to get Joseph to this place in God's timing. Now, whenever Joseph was in the pit, what do you think he was praying for? Maybe praying for, uh, to get out one day, just to be free again. Perhaps praying that he would one day see his father again. And I think we can be pretty sure he wasn't praying for this to happen. He could never have expected it, never in his wildest dreams. But God had greater plans for him, plans he would only understand as he learned to read them backwards. And so often there's a temptation for us, isn't there, to, to try and take matters into our own hands. And we grow so impatient in life. And yet we often realize in our circumstances and situations, there's maybe very little we can actually do. Better instead to trust to God's timing, difficult as that may be. But what a difference a day makes for 
Joseph. He began it in the, in the prison. He ends it in the palace. And yet it may be there in the palace rather than in Potiphar's house that Joseph was to face the greatest of his trials and temptations. He's now in this lofty position where he will be exposed to all of the pressures and persuasions of the land of Egypt. We might think if somebody's faith was to fail, it would come during a time of immense trial. Something comes out of the blue. Tragedy, sickness, death in the family, something like that there. They're really shaken. And that can happen, but probably not as often as we think. If we remember the words with which James begins his epistle, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What we're reminded of there is that often such trials as that actually make people stronger. Instead of crumbling, their faith is strengthened. Why? Because in such times as that, we are reminded of our dependence upon God. And if you think back to last week in chapter 40 when we were looking at Joseph in prison, if you were here, Jeff very helpfully applied the words of Psalm 23 to Joseph's time in the pit. Because it is whenever we are in the deepest and darkest valleys of life that we are most conscious that God is with us, that his rod and staff, they care for us, they comfort us. And so it is in times when the storm clouds gather overhead that we will take shelter and refuge in the Lord. But whenever the clear skies reappear, whenever we come out of the valley and into the sun, it's so easy to try and stand on our own two feet and sort of wander off into a hopeless independence. If we think about the people of Israel, every time the Philistines attacked, they would cry out to God to rescue them. And yet in the times of peace, they went back to living like Philistines themselves. Apathy will destroy faith more than trials will. That apathy, when things are going well, when life is good and comfortable, and we maybe think we don't really need to depend on God, that's when we are most likely to lose sight of him. It's been an issue for the church in every age, but probably never more so than in the present because we've never really had it so good, have we? All of our advances in, in science and technology and medicine and education and economics and all of these things, it can make us just think that, well, religion is not fit for the 21st century. You don't really need to depend on God when you can provide for yourself. But such wealth and power and status as none of us could ever imagine is bestowed upon Joseph in the blink of an eye. So how is he to respond? Is this going to be a distraction for him? Will he succumb to the pressures of Egypt? Will he become like the people around him? No. Because Joseph remembers his God, remembers how God has been with him throughout all of his trials. His faith is deep-rooted. It really is grounded. He knows that all of his success, it is not in me but God. It is God who has been with him. It is God who has given it to him. And so Joseph is able to withstand the pressures that come around him in Egypt, all the wealth and all the status and privilege that comes with it. But there is another trial, perhaps even more subtle than that. We see how Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, Zephenath Paneah. It means God has spoken and he lives. Now, again, that's right. We said a broken clock is right twice a day. Here's Pharaoh's second time being right. But I don't think he really believed these words for himself, because if he did, he probably wouldn't do what he's about to do. He gives Joseph a wife, and we might think that's a very generous thing to give to somebody. Uh, this is Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. 
And names are very significant in these last few verses of Genesis 41. Just as Joseph's new name is significant, so are the names of his wife and children to follow. In Egypt, there were many gods, and they worshipped all sorts of things. And in the city of On, well, it was famous for worship of the sun. So Potiphar, he is one of the chief priests of sun worship in Egypt. He's a great pagan. And now his pagan daughter is to marry Joseph. Asenath, the daughter means if she belongs to the goddess Niet. She belongs to a pagan goddess. And now she is to come into Joseph's home. We might wonder if she will have a similar effect on him as all of King Solomon's pagan wives had on him. Would she lead him astray? Or would Joseph actually help to steer her towards the true and living God? Now, if you were to look for a new job, what might interest you? It might be the, the benefits, the holiday, the pay. Maybe you can work from home. Well, Joseph, he's got a new name. He's got a wife to go with it. And he's about to get a uniform as well. So we're told there how he was shaved before he brought to Pharaoh. The Hebrews had beards, but Egyptians didn't have beards. He had to be shaved. He's now dressed like an Egyptian. He really doesn't look like a Hebrew at all. Of course, whenever his brothers later come to see him, they won't recognize who he is. We might say he's gone out of the frying pan and into the fire. This promotion could prove more dangerous than the pit had ever been. And maybe you found yourself in a position like this, where you are that lone Christian voice. And maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in a group of friends. Maybe it's even in your own home, as it was for Joseph. Anywhere he went, he was that lone voice for the living God. And wherever you find yourself to be, you're constantly exposed to all sorts of pressures, all sorts of persuasions, to just conform and to be like everybody else. And you face that day by day, and it's relentless wherever you go. And that is a pressure all of us will face. We'll face it in different ways. It'll look different for everyone. Some of us will face it more than others. But it's a, it's a pressure every one of us will face. So how then do we resist it? How then do we stand against it? Well, it is by relying upon the Lord. We can take comfort in God's word and in the examples of godly people like Joseph or like a Daniel and his friends in Babylon. It was much the same situation, but they wouldn't eat the food everyone else ate. They wouldn't bow down and pray to men or to statues. And whatever the cost may be, they remained faithful to their God. And what we notice with both Daniel and Joseph is actually they're young men when these things happen to them. They're young men when they make this commitment that they are going to follow their God whatever may come. Now that's not to say that you could ever be too old to make that same decision. But maybe it is easier when you're young, when you're young to make that firm commitment, to put in place those godly disciplines that will help you to stay close and walk with the Lord just as Daniel prayed three times a day. Remember that your conscience can be your friend. A conscience that is shaped and formed by the Bible will be a great help to each of us because it helps us to draw lines, to set limits, and to know not to cross them. And we remember that just as God was with Joseph, just as the Spirit of God was in him, so too God has poured out his Holy Spirit upon his people, that we are never alone, we are never as isolated as we may feel, that God is with us and his grace is sufficient in times of need and in times of testing. It can be said that Joseph was in Egypt, but Egypt never got into him. And we see this even with the names he gives to his two sons because they're both Hebrew names. Manasseh 
God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And they're significant names because Ephraim's name is only possible because Manasseh came first. Joseph has been made fruitful. Why? Because he has forgotten the hardship. The hardship has passed. It is as God says through the prophet Joel, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The years that the locusts had eaten, that Joseph had spent in the pit, they would be restored to him as he is now greatly blessed, as God sovereignly lifts him from that pit to that palace to be his man in Egypt, in this foreign land, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. The prison years were in the past. Fruitful years lay ahead in this new position. And it is that when the famine arrived, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. And so we can end then as we began, looking at the providence of God, a book we can only read backwards. What was God's plan in all of this? What was God's purpose in his providence here? Well, for that, we have to jump a long way back to Genesis 12 and to verse 3, where God makes his promises to Abraham. And among those promises is this, that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And now it is, here's Joseph, the great grandson of Abraham, that all the world comes to him to be blessed, to buy grain for bread. And yet such bread would not last. It would run out. They would become hungry again. They would need to go back and to buy grain once more. And yet there is another descendant of Abraham, another one through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he said, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never hunger. And whoever trusts in me will never thirst. It can be said that Jesus Christ is the true and better Joseph. Think about these two men, both betrayed by those closest to them, sold for some pieces of silver, stripped of their clothes. And yet just as God raised Joseph from the pit to the palace, so too he raised Jesus from the grave to glory. Two men through whom all the families of the earth should be blessed. God's anointed man, one to save the world from famine and the other to save the world from sin. It was Moses who wrote Genesis and Exodus. And if you think back to who were, would have been Moses' original readers, it would have been the children of Israel. It would have been that generation who at first were brought out of Egypt by God's sovereign power. And so they would be able to look back and to read God's providence in history. They would look back to Joseph and there they would find a man who was brought out of prison in Egypt, who God had sovereignly delivered from his imprisonment. And it would be the same for them. And just as God sovereignly delivered Joseph from imprisonment in Egypt, so too uh, he would do that for them. And God would take them into the wilderness and they would grumble and they would complain and they would fear they would starve. So what does God do? He provides them with manna, the bread from heaven, just as God used Joseph to provide bread for their ancestors all those years before. And so the Joseph story is a reminder to that generation, as a reminder of us today, to trust to the providence of God. We have a God who is altogether sovereign, altogether good, altogether loving, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, who works all things for good for those who love him. And yet, isn't it a great thing that we stand on this side of the cross, 
that we can see history in a way the children of Israel didn't, that we can see the true and better Joseph, the bread of life who saves us from the pit of sin and of death, to know that whoever comes to him should never hunger, but that whoever comes to him will find their full satisfaction, that they will find life in Jesus Christ alone. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And your word reminds us on every page that you are the sovereign God and there is none like you. And that amidst all the trials and turbulations of life, there you are, O Lord, controlling it all, ordaining whatever comes to pass. And even when we find ourselves in the pit, when we find ourselves in the most desperate of situations, you are working it for our good. And even as you raised up Joseph, to save the lives of oh so many people that in him all the families of the earth should be blessed. So too you've raised up Jesus Christ the Savior, the bread of life, that in him all the families of the earth should be blessed. Lord, may we look to him, may we taste of that bread to know salvation that only Christ can give. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.